It's wonderful to see in our audience this morning also some dear friends uh, from Peggy Tadlock's family. It's wonderful to see you. Tadlock family, welcome. Friends, as we have just sung this song, when we need comfort, where do we go? Um, some people have all kinds of little tricks, um, little paths uh, that we have gotten used to in our lives on which we start traveling when we need comfort. We are people who are constantly looking for comfort. We're people who constantly need to be comforted. When we go through stressful times, through difficult times, we are creatures who need and seek to be comforted. But where? Where do we go for such comfort? We have various ways. We might be consuming certain foods or drinks. We may be looking for reassurance from others by putting something on social media and seek to receive people's affirmations. Or we may retrieve to old habits or go back to some sinful patterns of living. Where do we go to find comfort? From the many options we may have, God's Word tells us that God's people have a God who comforts His people. God's Word tells us that God's people have a God who comforts His people. And this morning, we want to look at this theme, the God who comforts His people. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, would you open God's Word to the book of Isaiah chapter 51? We'll be reading from verse 1 to 23. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you, and you may find this passage in those Bibles on page number 611. God's Word comes to us from Isaiah 51, 1 through 23, on page number 611 in the Pew Bibles. Here's God's Word for us. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look to the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, 
the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed, dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? And have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor, when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this. You who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and ask God to speak to our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a God who revealed yourself. You are a God who revealed to your people the comfort that you are able to give. Father, help us through the preaching of your word to find comfort in you and you alone. We pray this for the glory of Christ and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Friends, if you are visiting with us, um, we are working our way through the book of Isaiah. For the first 39 chapters of this book, God exposed the rebellion 
of his people against the Lord. Despite all the words of promise, despite all the words of warning that God has given to his people, God's people kept mistrusting the Lord and going against the Lord, pursuing instead their own strategies, their own solutions for life and for their life challenges. So God exiled his people because they trusted more in themselves and in the idols they followed. He first exiled the northern tribes of of, uh, Israel and exiled them by sending them to Assyria. 150 years later, God chose to exile the southern tribes of Judah by exiling them into Babylon. And from chapter 40 on, God speaks to his people particularly to the southern kingdom who is going to be exiled into Babylon, and he speaks to them, envisioning that they were already in exile, that they were going to experience the exile to Babylon. And in these chapters, from chapter 40 on, God is telling his people that he is the only one who can rescue them, that God is the only one to whom they can look for hope and refuge and comfort. God has been showing them in these chapters, from chapter 40 to chapter 51, that none of the idols that they could cling to, none of the idols that they could run after, could rescue them from their situation. God promised to send them another servant, a servant of the Lord who would relive the story of Israel. And through this servant, God promised to bring salvation not only to his people, Israel, but to all all the nations of the world. And in chapter 50, we saw for the third time the mission of the servant of the Lord. Part of the mission of the servant of the Lord was to sustain the weary, those who are tired, those who are troubled, those who need comfort, those who need strength. And how was the servant of the Lord going to sustain the weary in chapter 50? We see that God, that the servant of the Lord in verse 4 was going to sustain the weary by his word. By his word. Well, in the text we are reading today in chapter 51, that's exactly what we get. God speaks himself. And he presents himself as a God who comforts his people. So this morning as we look at chapter 51 on the on the hills of having an image of the servant of the Lord who said, I am going to sustain the weary with a word. Chapter 51 is a deliverance of that promise. God begins speaking to the weary. And he says, I am the one who comforts you. As we look at this passage as this theme of the God who comforts his people, we're going to look at three major points. And if you like taking notes, each of these three points will have some subpoints. I'll try to give you some guidance along the way. But the first point, as we look at the God who comforts his people, as we look at how God does it, how is it that God provides comfort for his people? Here's the first point. God's comfort draws our attention to him. God's comfort draws our attention to him. We see that in the first eight verses of this chapter. 
three times God gives the command to his people to listen to him. In verse 1, God says, listen to me. Then he says, give attention to me in verse 4. Then in verse um, 7, he says again, listen to me. Three times in these eight verses, first eight verses, God draws the attention of his people to him. A similar, a similar message was given in chapter 40 where, this, where the major half of the, of the book of Isaiah takes a turn. In chapter 40, God says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And the next thing is speak tenderly to Jerusalem. God's comfort begins by God speaking. I wonder if you realize that. God's comfort begins by God speaking. And that's why in in chapter 51, as God presents himself as a God of comfort, he draws the attention of his people back to himself. Notice whose attention is God trying to get. In this chapter, he is trying to get the attention of his righteous people. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God has spoken to a number of people. Sometimes he spoke to the northern tribes who were very far advanced in their rebellion. Other times God spoke to the southern tribes of Judah who were also lured and were pursuing the same rebellious path as the northern tribes. They too continued the path of rebellion against the Lord. Sometimes God spoke to the nations. In this chapter, God speaks to a subset of his people, not to all his people, not to all his exiles. God speaks to a subset of his people, and the subset of the people to whom he's now speaking are those who are pursuing righteousness. We see a a similar description in verse 7, where God's people are described as, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Here, righteousness or the righteous are described as those who have God's law in their hearts. It's not those who simply pose to be right with God only on the outside. It's not merely those who act righteously in their behavior. It's those who have God's law in their hearts. These are the righteous. That's why, dear friends, we should never be pleased merely to know God's word with our minds. We should, we should desire to embrace it with our hearts so that God's law is a part of our hearts. As the Lord addresses his people, and as this chapter is spoken to this category of people, he's calling them and them to listen. He's not calling the rebellious to listen. He's calling the people who already have God's law in their hearts. This tells us that even when we think that we have God's law in our minds or in our hearts, we're never too far away from being called to pay attention to the Lord. And as as these calls are given, notice notice the encouragements that God gives to his people. We're going to see three sub-points in this major first point. God calls his people to listen to him and three times he's going to give him a few encouragements so the first one is this 
the Lord comforts Zion. In Isaiah, Zion is a dwelling place of his people. Zion is mentioned 48 times in the book of Isaiah. The first time is in chapter 1. We see in chapter 1, verse 8. Here's how Zion is introduced in the book of Isaiah. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. That's how Isaiah begins describing Zion. Like a besieged city. But then in chapter 1, verse 27, there's a wonderful promise. God says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent shall be redeemed by righteousness. That was a great promise. And we see this promise again throughout the book of Isaiah. In chapter 46, verse 13, God says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. But despite these promises, here's how Zion responded to God. In chapter 49, verse 14, we're getting closer to our passage. In chapter 49, verse 14, here's what Zion said. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. This is where 50, chapter 51 finds us. At this time in the book, the people of Zion were deeply discouraged. And humanly speaking, it's understandable why. They were exiled from the place God gave them. That place was in ruin. And notice in verse 3 how God comforts his people. Chapter 51, verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. How does he do it? He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, like her desert, like the garden of the Lord. In other words, God's comfort here takes an unusual shape. God commits to deal with the waste places of Zion, with what had become a wilderness. God commits, commits to deal with them in a transforming way from a wasteland to a reality that will be like, like the Garden of Eden, like the Garden of the Lord. Now, one of the characteristics about the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Lord, is that it, is, it was the place where Adam and Eve lived before the curse was given, before they sinned against the Lord, before the sin they committed triggered the curse upon them and upon all creation. And for God now to promise to transform the wilderness, the waste places of Zion, and to transform them to be not just a better place, but to transform them to be like Eden? Oh, friends, it's as if God is saying, I'm going to transform your place to be like the place that once used to be without the curse of sin. This is great news. It means that God is planning a transformation that will no longer have the curse of sin in it. This is a transformation that God promised to bring about for his people. Can you imagine living in a place where none of the effects of sin would be present? 
to live in such a place will mean that the curse of, of sin will be totally removed and resolved. No sorrow, no pain, no separation, no tears, no disappointment. No more people disappointing you. No more you disappointing people. None of that. But this is also challenging news. If God is promising to comfort Zion by making this radical transformation to compare it to the Garden of Eden, it implies that the fulfillment of this comfort is not for the immediate circumstances. God's comfort here has a long view in mind. This amazing comfort God promises is not a quick fix for the here and now, nor is it an immediate release from our troubles. No wonder that the newly transformed Zion will be filled with joy, with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. God's commitment to comfort Zion should be a comfort to us, for we too are still waiting for that fulfillment to come, and it will come. But notice another a second way in which God comforts his people. Sub-point number two to point number one. God comforts his people by giving them a second call to listen. And here's a call, verse four. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Friends, God has already given his law to his Old Testament people, uh, Israel, in the book of Moses, the first five books of, of the Bible. But now God says that he is about to reveal a new law and a new justice. And the difference will be that this time God's law and justice will no longer be limited only for Israel, but for all the nations. Friend, I wonder if this news is comforting to you. So often, we look for comfort only as we need it in our personal lives. We are only concerned with our troubles, with our own little lives. And God says, step back and, and look at my worldwide rescue plan. God has a rescue. God has a redemption plan, a comfort that he wants to bring not just to you and me individually. God wants to bring a comfort and a rescue that is worldwide. Also, when God makes himself known, those who turn to God are turning to the light of his word. It means that to live apart from God, to live in ignorance of his word, is to live in spiritual darkness. When God reveals his law, when God establishes his justice, it will be a light for the peoples. Friends, even today, God desires to give this light to the nations through the proclamation, through the revealing of his law and justice. Where we stand now in the history of redemption, God has already made that law known. God has already made his justice known. And he wants his law and his justice to be a light for his people, for the peoples of the nations. Sometimes when we think about the light that we need to take on to the world, we think that we need to talk only about God's love. And it's true, that's part of, of the light that God gives. But in this passage, interestingly, the light to the nations is God's law and his justice. Have you ever thought that God's law and his justice can be a light 
for the peoples. In verse 5, God says that His righteousness is approaching His people. This is great news because God's people have not been righteous. They have not been right with God. Yet God is making available to them a righteousness that He sends out to them. God says that He's sending out His salvation and that His arm will judge the peoples and the nations hope for God to come. Now the salvation that God is sending out is unlike anything they have ever experienced. To understand the salvation, God gives them an illustration. In verse 6, He calls them to look at the heavens and the earth. What are they supposed to see when they look at the heavens and the earth? In verse 6, we're told what they're supposed to see when they look at the heavens and the earth. Verse 6 says, For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. What are we supposed to take from this picture? God challenges his people to look at the creation we dwell in and to see that all of it has an expiration date. It's actually more than an expiration date. It's more like a vanishing date. The heavens will vanish. Friends, do you know how easy it is for God to cause the heavens to vanish? It's as easy as the vanishing of smoke. The heavens will vanish like smoke. And the earth, too, will wear out like a garment. We may not see how our clothes wear out if we look at them from day to day. But over time, over a long time, you realize, oh, this clothes, this piece of clothing is worn out. You may not realize it if you look at it from day to day, but it surely wears out. And God says, the earth is wearing out like a garment. And if that's not enough, more importantly, God says, the people who dwell on it will die in the like manner. Oh, friends, if we look for comforts only for this earth, what good will such comforts be when we have to die with this creation? We need a comfort that can carry us beyond death. We need comfort that can sustain us beyond the grave. We need a comfort that can carry us beyond the time when the heavens and the earth will perish. In contrast with the heavens that will perish, God says in verse 6, but my salvation will be forever. Friends, this is God's comfort to his people. The salvation he promises them is not merely a return out of their physical exile back to their land which one day will perish. God's salvation will carry God's people past the time when these heavens and this earth will vanish. God's salvation will never expire. It will never have a time limit to it. God's salvation will never wear out. Does the thought of having an eternal salvation comfort your heart? Does the thought of having a salvation that never wears out, does that thought comfort you? If it does not, 
thank you for those who said yes. But for, if, if, if this is a new concept for you, if it, if it brings no comfort to your heart, oh, friends, let this be a wake-up call for you. It should be alarming. It might indicate that you don't believe God's word that these heavens and this earth will perish, and we too shall. And we need a better comfort than what we can experience in the here and the now. There's a third subpoint to God's comfort, to Zion. The third subpoint in the third address is that God addresses what they fear. In verse 7, God says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Why not fear? Why not fear them? Look at verse 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. You hear that picture again? And the worm will eat them up like wool. Notice that God is not saying that we should not fear the oppressors because we are stronger than them. That's not what God is saying. That's not why we should not fear them. Nor is God saying, don't fear them for they can't do any damage to you. No, they most likely will do some damage to you. That's not the reason why we should fear them or we should not fear them. The reason God gives his people for not fearing their oppressors are not immediate reasons. I wonder if you notice that. They are long-term reasons. That the oppressors will eventually perish. They will not last forever. God points again to the contrast of his salvation. In contrast with those who will perish, with those who will beaten up, will be eaten up by the worms, God says in verse 8, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. But this contrast may not relieve God's people in our immediate experiences. The comfort that God promises to come comes when God's people adopt a long view of life. A long view that the oppressors will eventually come to an end. But the salvation God offers is not. It will last forever. Now, how is this eternal perspective a comfort for us in our troubles now? First of all, it helps us not to have unbiblical expectations from the times of suffering and trials. Such times may not end immediately. Such times may not end when we want them to end. The Bible would want God's people to have a realistic picture that suffering, that troubles and trials may not come to an end when we want them to come. Second, it helps us to adopt an eternal view of our existence. What we need is not merely a temporary fix but an eternal solution. We must view our lives not merely from the perspective of what we experience in this life, but what awaits for us beyond the grave. Sometimes we may feel that our life is passing away without us experiencing the fullness of it here and now. Have you ever felt that resentment? Have you ever felt that fear? But God's comfort has been to point our direction to realize that we must take 
and adopt a broader view of life, a life that will be beyond the grave. And when we think of our lives, of what will happen to us when this earth will vanish, when we adopt that kind of a perspective, it will help us to have a different view of our troubles in the here and the now. So, for instance, instead of falling into resentment that this life is not what we wanted it to be, I get it. I understand that. That's the natural tendency for all of us to have. But instead of falling into resentment of that, God wants his people to think that one day, all the things that make our life miserable now, all of those things will be gone. And we will be able to experience God's salvation without end. Now, this perspective is comforting only if we take a broader view of our life. Only if we believe God's word, these heavens will vanish. This earth will wear out and we too with it. We should not hold on to prolonging this life on earth that is vanishing away. We should be looking forward to salvation that will have no end. In these first eight verses, God challenges his people to pay attention to him as he promised to comfort Zion, as he promised that his salvation is worldwide, as he promised that while oppressors will perish eventually, his salvation is without end. This is a comfort that God wants his people to cling to. Such promises that God makes turns the prophet as Isaiah to respond to God in hope and in confidence. Look at the second point that we see in this passage. God's comfort stirs us to prayer. God's comfort stirs us to prayer. The speaker in verse 9 is not identified. We don't know exactly who is speaking. It's possible that Isaiah is the one speaking on behalf of the people or on his own behalf. But in light of the promises of the first eight verses, the speaker in verse 9 calls on God to act. Notice how he begins in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. The call to God to awake is repeated three times in this verse. Here's a longing of God's people who just heard the promises of God, and, and he, they say, Lord, would you act? Would you act? Would you act? Three times. The, promise, the prophet, uh, this prayer, uh, the, the prophet has a lot of good stuff in it, especially when we see this response in contrast with, with how Zion responded in chapter 49. Remember how Zion responded? In chapter 49, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. In contrast to Zion's prayer in 49, here the prophet says, Lord, awake. Lord, awake. The prophet hears God's promises, and he believes them. He not only believes the promises, but he remembers how God acted in the past. The reference to Rahab is a code word for Egypt. Look at Isaiah 37, chapter 30, verse 7. Look at that in your, in your Bibles at home. But there, Egypt is described as Rahab. Also, the dragon is a word code for Pharaoh. We see that in Ezekiel 29.3. The speaker remembers how God shattered into pieces the Egyptians when God 
took them out of their exile, out of their bondage. This prayer remembers God's act of salvation in the past. But he also, this prayer is also confident that God will cause his ransomed people to return back to Zion. Look at verse 11. This prophet believes what God has said. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Friends, this verse is almost a verbal repetition of what God said in Isaiah 35.10. Almost a verbal repetition of what God promised in Isaiah 35.10, where the prophet said, or the Lord said through the prophet, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Friends, in, in Isaiah 35, verse 10, that was a conclusion to a major point in the book of Isaiah. It was a grand finale of describing God's future restoration. And this is what the prophet clings to as he prays to the Lord and is confident that his people will indeed be brought back. But it's not back to an earthly Zion, friends. The people are not looking to rebuild the earthly Jerusalem. We are not looking to that rebuild. We're looking to the, to the Zion where sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's that kind of Zion that the prophet is confident that people will return to. Friends, throughout the book of Isaiah, we have seen that the disobedience and rebellion of God's people was the cause of their exile taken out of the place that God prepared for them. This is a story of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. The second half of the book traces the story of their return. But their return is to a Zion that physically was ruined. And yet God promises and he says, don't worry. I'm comforting the place to which you're returning. And I'm going to transform it into a place like the Garden of Eden. And you will come to it with singing, with gladness, with thanksgiving, with joy. The sorrow will be gone. The, the, the sighing will be gone. They will flee away. You won't even have to move a finger to remove them. They will flee away. Oh, friends, this Zion is what God is preparing for us. Once these heavens shall vanish. It's a Zion that will be revealed when this earth will pass away. The joy of that future Zion will be an everlasting joy. Friends, as we consider these comforts, let's look at the final part of our chapter from verse 12 to 23. God's comfort challenges us to examine our fears. God's comfort challenges us to examine our fears. In verse 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like the grass? God wants his people to examine carefully their fear of man. If they let themselves be ruled by the fear of man, do they realize that man dies, that man is as transient as the grass? Friends, does the thought enter our minds that whoever we fear, they are mere mortals? One day, they all shall pass away. 
Why allow ourselves to be consumed with fear towards someone who is passing away? Sometimes, dear friends, we are afraid that we ourselves are passing. Sometimes we are afraid of death. Friends, recognize the Bible says we all will die sooner or later. For some it is later, for some it is sooner. We should not be afraid of the passing. God says, look at that which is eternal. The fear of man takes various forms in us. In some, it manifests as caring too much about people's impressions. In some of us, it carries uh, it manifests in caring too much about pleasing people more than God. Whichever way the fear of man manifests in you, remember that man, all man, will die. Why allow yourself to be ruled by the fears of those who will perish one day? It is possible, dear friends, that we can become easily over-impressed by people and not nearly as impressed by God. The fear of man manifests in us when we are more impressed by man than by God. When we are more impressed with our own lives than with God. When we give more significance to man, to ourselves, to one another than to God. In verse 12, God confronts our fears. And then in verse 13, he confronts our forgetfulness of God. He says, and you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. If in our moments of fear, we let our hearts be captivated by what man can do to us, it may be an indicator that we are forgetting who God is and what he has done for us. And the second part of verse 13 shows us that some among God's people feared continuously all the day. Do you see that? So God's challenging them to consider what they're actually fearing. And how do those objects that they fear, how do they compare to God? It is helpful, though, to remember that in the face of fears, our hearts may not lack information. It's not information that we need in the face of fear. Rather, the conviction that what we know about God is actually true. Remember, the people whom, to whom God speaks these words are the righteous ones. They are the ones who are already pursuing God. They're the ones who have God's law already in their hearts. And yet, nevertheless, they're fearful at this moment. It's easy for us to have God's word in our minds, and yet our hearts are not actually embracing what we know to be true. And that's what God's doing here. He's confronting them and saying, look at the objects of those who fear and compare them once again with God. Friends, is it possible that what we fear may say more about what our hearts think of God than what our minds know about God? We may know the right information about God, but our hearts don't embrace it. Friends, take a good look at your fears. Take a good look at your fears. Don't push them away. Don't put them in a closet pretending like they're not there. They're there. Open the closet. Look at them. Examine them. And examine the object of your fear. And let it come in contrast with God. Put those two in a, on a pedestal and see who is weightier. Get a, get a view of your fears and that which you fear. 
And let that contrast heal. Let the view of God heal your fears. God's comfort calls us to awake. Verse 17. The prophet asked God earlier in verse 9 three times to awake. Right? Awake, O Lord. Awake, O arm of the Lord. And here's God in verse 17. And God says, no, it is you who need to awake. I am calling you, my people, to awake. You call me to awake? You call me to act? Well, I am. Here's my first thing. Here's how I'm acting. I'm acting by awakening you. Because you have been asleep. You have left your senses to, to go drowsy. And God says, wake, verse 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. How often we might think that God is not watching, that God needs to awake, when in reality, it is us who are not watching. It is us who need to awake. The first awakening that Israel had to have was the reality that there is no human comfort against God's wrath. The first awakening that Israel had to experience is that there's no human comfort against God's wrath. Look at verse 18. God says, there's none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. God wants his people to awaken to the reality that even in her own family, there's no comfort against God's wrath. There's no comfort in her own resourcefulness. The same point he made in verse 19. These two things have happened to you. God says, who will console you? What a great question, God asks. Who will comfort you? Who will console you? God is asking his people if they have any hope for comfort in the midst of their tragic circumstances. Do they have any leads for comfort? Verse 20, God points out that putting comfort in their children or in hoping that their children will, be, will have a better future, such hope is empty. Oh, friends, God says, your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. Putting confidence, in other words, putting confidence in our youth is not a reliable place for our confidence. Do we put comfort and confidence in our families, in our children, in our youth? As much as we love our children and youth, we cannot make them the object of our comfort or hope. God's comfort assures us, however, of a third point. God's comfort assures us that he is putting an end to his wrath against his people. Look at verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. The very image of a cup of wrath points to that which is measured. None of the troubles that came against the exiled people of Israel, none of them were unending. They had a measure that only God knew. But the God who brought wrath against his people has the authority to divert it. God's people had to know and had to be awakened to the reality that their troubles were not the wrath of Babylon. That their troubles was the wrath of God. That God had put this cup of suffering in their hands. They had lost that reality. 
they had to be awakened to that. And none of the, the children they had, the, the, the offspring they had, could not comfort them against the wrath of God. But now God says, I have the right, I have the authority to, to put this cup of wrath in your hand. But I also have the authority to take it away, to divert it. And this is a good news. The exile was not merely the wrath of the Babylonians, but the wrath of God against his sinful people. Friends, sin has consequences. But the good news of this passage is that God determined that the bowl of his wrath against his people will come to an end. Friends, sin triggers God's wrath against our rebellion. That message needs to be communicated even today. But God's good news is that he found a way to put an end to his wrath against his people. In chapter 51, we don't know the details of how is it that God can put an end to the wrath that he caused against his people. What determined God to put an end to that? The answer will be in chapter 52 and 53, as we will look again at the fourth picture of the servant of the Lord. In chapter 52 and 53, we get to see how is it possible for God to put an end to his wrath against his people. It will be through his servant who, goes, who is going to be Jesus. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, do you know what he asked the Father? He asked the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The cup, just like in Isaiah, the cup of wrath, the cup of God's wrath. God was willing to put an end to the wrath, the cup of wrath for his people. But when it came to Jesus, God let Jesus drink that cup of wrath so that God could divert his wrath from his people. Friends, that's the only reason why we have any hope that God's wrath against any of us who have sinned against him can be diverted because the servant of the Lord was going to drink the cup of wrath fully. We will experience and celebrate that story in the next few weeks here at Park Hills Baptist Church. Jesus understood the wrath of God was being the cup he was going to drink. And the Father was not going to take it away. And Jesus responded, You're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, the story of Isaiah doesn't stop here. God says that he's not merely putting an end to the cup of his wrath against his people. God says that he will take the cup of his wrath that will divert it from his people and he will put it back into the hands of their tormentors. All those who remain hostile to God, all those who remain hostile to, their, to his people will drink in full the cup of wrath which God will be pouring out for all eternity. This should help us understand why in the book of Revelation we see God's judgment so greatly explained and the book of Revelation shows that God's wrath will be redirected towards all those who have opposed God 
and not trusted in the Lamb who has drunk the wrath of God. Isaiah 51 ends with this message of great comfort that God has, direct, has determined to put a stop to the cup of His wrath against His people. And we'll see why. Because of the Lamb. Because of servant. But for those who continue to ignore God, for those who continue to oppose God, for those who continue to oppose His people, the wrath of God remains. And that should be a sobering thought, dear friends. That the wrath of God remains on all those who continue to oppose God or His people. So from verse 12 to 23, God's comfort challenges us to examine our fears. He calls us to awaken ourselves. He assures us that He is putting an end to His wrath against His people. I love how John Calvin, the great reformer, commented on these words and he said, even when we should have great need of consolation, we reject it by our impatience and faint. What is here demanded is attention to sustain our hearts by patience till the season of grace be fully come. Friends, it is hard to be comforted if our hearts cling to impatience. It's hard to be comforted if our hearts demand immediate relief. It's hard to be comforted if our hearts become inattentive to God's Word. So this morning, as we have looked at this passage, let me review to you the three points. God's comfort draws our attention to Him. God's comfort stirs us to prayer. And God's comfort assures us that He is putting an end to His wrath against His people. May that comfort be ours today and forevermore. And may we find that comfort not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. Let's close our time together. You alone, O oh God, are the God who are able to comfort your people with a comfort that will never wear out, with a comfort that will never expire, with a comfort that will never fade away. Lord God, would you make this comfort to be ours in our times of need? Would you enable us to look at Christ to look at the one who took the wrath of God, who took, who took upon himself the wrath that we deserved so that through his death we may, have, may find the comfort that is ours for all eternity. Father, we pray that if anyone among us here has not turned to Jesus, if anyone among us here in this gathering has not trusted in Christ for salvation, we pray that the day would be the day when they do so, so they too may be the recipients of this comfort that you give to your people. Father, we pray that we would be a congregation that makes your comfort visible and known and proclaimed. And may you be glorified through the way you comfort your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.